Hello and welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This past week, the nation was shocked by the shooting deaths of eight people in Atlanta, including six women of Asian descent. It has not been officially deemed a hate crime, but here in North Carolina, legislators are once again pushing the Hate Crimes Prevention Act. To talk about it with us is one of the bill's sponsors, Senator Jay Chaudhary of Wake County and political analyst Steve Rao. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. And firstly, it should go without saying that a threat to the live or the safety of anyone based on their race is intolerable and a call for solidarity. Um, what, Senator, can you tell us about the renewed effort to get this uh, hate crimes legislation passed? It's not its first time uh, to the General Assembly. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for having me on. Uh, I plan to refile the Hate Crimes Prevention Act uh, uh, this week uh, because uh, for two reasons. Number one is we know that there has been a steady increase in hate crimes and hate groups over the last four years. Uh, the Stop uh, AAPI uh, group actually just came out with a study earlier this week that said there's been almost 4,000 uh, anti-Asian hate incidences uh, since the pandemic because uh, a lot of uh, the pandemic and the virus has been attached with neg negative stereotypes of Asian Americans. Uh, and, and secondly, we know from uh, the FBI director's testimony uh, this week, in fact, that we're seeing a rise in hate, hate groups uh, across the country. And uh, this is the third time I filed this bill. Uh, I have filed this bill because uh, this bill to me is not only about protecting uh, black and brown communities, but it's also about making sure that we hold together uh, our, our red, white, and blue country, uh, because the fact of the matter is um, hate crimes and hate groups are really tearing apart uh, the fabric of this country. Well, something certainly has to be done, and Steve, I wanted to get your feedback on it, too. Even though we say that we've been shocked as a nation, uh, as the senator has mentioned, hate crimes have been up and documented, what was your reaction to the incident um, of this week? Well, it's an honor to be here with Senator Chaudhary, and I, I, I want to re really commend him and his leadership, along with Senator Fushi and Senator Muhammad, for taking the lead on bringing this legislation forward. But I will tell you that, as a son of immigrants from India, like Senator Chaudhary, uh, our parents came to America uh, so they could raise their families in freedom and peace. And, I, you know, the fact that their grandchildren today have to live in a nation where uh, someone can just be gunned down because they're Asian-American. And I think it's a culture that's infected like a cancer in America. And President Trump, you know, calling the, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the China virus, certainly didn't help. And he continues to do that, creating this, this culture. And so I think that this is, like the senator said, more than just about brown people and Asian people, but it's about America, our nation. And we have to stop this. And I think the legislation in North Carolina would be the first step forward. And I hope legislators across this country uh, would do the same as long, uh, along with our U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate. And President Biden is also visiting Atlanta today, and he'll be addressing Atlanta and the nation on this issue as well. Well, certainly, former President Trump is out of office now, and uh, hopefully uh, things are changing in our society. But this event tells us that there is residue left over. Senator Chaudhary, can you share a little bit more about um, the breadth of this uh, hate crimes legislation, what it would actually do? Yeah, so the, the the Hate Crimes Prevention Act will do a few things. Number one is it would expand 
the scope of protections for, uh, under the hate crime statute, and it would include uh, ethnicity, it would include uh, sexual orientation, disability, gender identity, gender expression. Uh, secondly, it would increase the punishment for uh, an underlying crime where hate would be deemed to be part of the motive of that crime. Uh, thirdly, and importantly, uh, the bill would require the State Bureau of Investigation here to collect and analyze hate crimes data because right now a lot of the information that is reported uh, to the State Bureau of Investigation is voluntary. And I think if you talk to researchers and policymakers, they would say that uh, the collection and, and, and analysis of that information uh, is critical. And lastly, the bill would provide for training uh, to local law enforcement uh, and prosecutors on how to tackle hate crimes bills. And, you know, from my perspective, Deborah, I think that, uh, you know, this bill is should not be controversial. It's not a Democratic-Republican bill. In fact, uh, the state of Georgia uh, passed uh, the hate crimes bill in light of uh, uh, the assault and murder that took place with the African-American there in, in, in Georgia. I mean, this should be this should be an easy bill to hold a hearing on and to pass uh, because um, we're, we're talking about ways that we can make we can uh, make better decisions in tackling an issue that I think is a, is a growing threat to our state and our country. And does it seem as though there has been um, partisanship with regard to this legislation? And why? You know, we, you know, we, we certainly haven't heard anything from the General Assembly leadership on the bill, but uh, given the fact that the bill has been uh, filed over the last two sessions and has not been given a hearing, uh, you know, my, my perspective is that the bill is, is not deemed to be important enough. I, I, I think the bill is perhaps, uh, as, as we heard yesterday in uh, the congressional testimony about uh, hearings about uh, violence against a Asian Americans, uh, that this bill is viewed as criminalizing political speech, uh, which is far from the truth. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, this bill does not criminalize political speech. Uh, you have to have an underlying crime committed uh, before you can even apply uh, the additional penalties that may arise from hate crime. And so I think that those arguments are misplaced. Well, on another issue, a surge in the number of migrant adults and children to the U.S.-Mexico border is generating questions about President Biden's policies on immigration, and this at the same time that lawmakers just approved two immigration bills addressing the legal status of DREAMers, border security, technology, farm workers, and help to Central America. So, gentlemen, I want to ask you also, and I'll, I'll open up with you, Steve, because I know that you've done a lot of research on this. We already know that 8% of North Carolina's population is uh, immigrants, and the second largest group is uh, people of Asian descent. How is this legislation uh, a positive for North Carolina as we bring it down from you know a federal perspective, but bringing it home to here in North Carolina, Steve? Well, I also serve, Deborah, as a board member of the New American Economy, which is chaired by Mike Bloomberg, former New York City mayor, and it's all about the economic impact of immigration. And so what I can tell you is that this is a huge step forward in driving economic growth for North Carolina. First, you know, you look at the DREAMers, uh, and four million citizens now in the United States, DREAMers and agricultural workers, undocumented immigrants, will be given status, TPS holders, in the U.S. And in North Carolina, what that means is the, the DREAMers that we have here, the 35,000, they can continue to stay in North Carolina and bring in the 484 million to our economy. Our agricultural industry, which is big in North Carolina, will now be helped 
as these undocumented immigrants can stay and work on our farms. We need people on the farms. They can work jobs that we need to keep our economy moving. And as it relates to the Asian Americans, and Senator Chaudhary is very well aware of this, we have a huge Asian Indian population, skilled immigrants, H-1Bs, applying for green cards. These are skilled immigrants that are vital to creating the jobs that we need now in the tech sector, the jobs in the new economy, providing vaccine research and innovation, and also entrepreneurs. Let's not forget that Zoom, Slack, Tesla, SpaceX, Colgate, Nordstrom's Best Buy, 44% of our Fortune 500, Yahoo, Google, were started by immigrants and skilled immigrants. And so we want those jobs in America. You know, you, you make note of skilled immigrants, and so often the arguments that we hear are focused around a concern that uh, jobs are going to be taken, and then the, the counter to that argument is, well, hey, uh, they're taking the jobs that Americans don't want to work, uh, jobs as farmers, jobs as, uh, as uh, custodians and that kind of thing. But this is, to me, uh, Senator Chaudhary, a limited view. What does it not take into consideration here? Well, it, it doesn't take into consideration the point that Steve mentioned is that so much of our economy, both from um, undocumented immigrants and skilled immigrants, uh, that, that uh, immigrants are the economic engine of this country. And I think that the, I think the passage of the uh, Farm Workforce Modernization Act, the second bill that was passed in Congress, on Thursday is somewhat telling because there were 30 Republicans that uh, supported that bill, many of them from red states. Uh, and part of the reason that there was support from uh, Republicans is because uh, farm workers are the backbone of the agricultural economy. Uh, that, that bill, I think, garnered bipartisan support uh, because it essentially created a compromise where you would provide legal status for farm workers, spouses, and their children in exchange for um, them, them paying a fine. So I think there's a reflection of their, of their status here in this country, but also I think it puts them on track uh, to help support some vitally uh, and critical industries, uh, agriculture industries that we have here uh, in, in this country and in our state, of course. And certainly there's the argument there that uh, immigrants are creating a drain on our economy, whereas, Steve, you just talked about the many contributions that immigrants uh, have made and continue to make to our country. Uh, what would you say about what you see in the current legislation that's promising and that you think will actually get, move through and get past this time? Well, you know, Deborah, I think that the first step is the it's happening piecemeal, right? Each issue. So it's really challenging to have a comprehensive bill. But now this is the first step. Dreamers and farmers. The U.S. Citizenship Act is proposing changes to the skilled immigration, uh, which is, you know, allowing uh, STEM workers to remain in our universities, uh, allowing spouses to move in between jobs, eliminating the per country cap doing all the things. So in North Carolina, just a few years ago, the New American Economy found out that if we passed skilled immigration reform, we'd add $750 million to our GDP in North Carolina. And this and addresses also job creation. Job creation, right. And, and I will tell you this, the, you know, we talked about Asian American hate crimes before we talked about this. The environment has become so hostile, and there's a lot of confusion between asylum and immigration. But at the end of the day, immigration today for skilled immigrants is the lowest it's been in 40 years. That should be very concerning to the United States of America because now these immigrants, and I'm talking to them in Morrisville too, they're looking at going to Canada. They're looking at going to Australia. They're looking at going to Israel and Britain 
because those countries are friendlier, they're making it easier for them to get in. And who wants to go to a country where people are being shot down because they're Asian, right? So we have to make sure also that the elephant in the room is also the fact that we want people coming in to create the jobs that we need here in North Carolina. I know Senator Chaudhary would agree. We want all those jobs in North Carolina, but, but immigration is a big part of that. Absolutely. I would agree. And I just want to thank both you, Steve Rao, and Senator Jay Chowdhury for coming out to Black Issues Forum and sharing your views. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Senator. Police advisory boards are established to help smooth relations between communities and police, but how effective are they? In Raleigh, two key members of a board formed in June of 2020 cited lack of transparency, among other reasons, for recently departing. To help provide insight, I'd like to welcome community activist Kerwin Pittman and Greer Webb, co-founder of Young Americans Protest. I'd like to ask uh, both of you, and wel welcome to Black Issues Forum again, uh, but last summer, uh, during the protests, we know about all the situation that essentially created a need for something to be done. And as a result, there was this Raleigh Police uh, Advisory Board. Let me start with you, Greer, to just share with us what your expectations were in joining that board. Sure. Firstly, thank you for having me on today. I'm glad to be here and share my perspective. Um, in joining that board, as you mentioned, that was not only created after the George Floyd protests in Raleigh in May of 2020, um, but was then enacted quickly, um, has been a community conversation for many years, dating back to 2015. Members of Raleigh's marginalized communities, especially the black community, had uh, wondered what to do um, and thought that a board of oversight was the best way to go forward. And so I had just uh, imagined my role on that board as one of transparency to provide that connection between the community and the city and to really advocate for what not only young people, but specifically black young young Raleighites uh, wanted to see from the police in our current system of community safety. So when you got on that board, what did you expect would be some of the outcomes? What were you hoping uh, to accomplish? So our board was created to look at, review, examine, and then give policy recommendations to city council. And so I went in there with an open mind, um, hoping to offer some perspective, both from a young person's point of view, as well as someone who's been born and raised in Raleigh. And so I really wanted to address some of the systemic issues related to policing and to prevent a George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or even Ahmaud Arbery from happening in Raleigh or in North Carolina. And so those were my intentions going in and serving um, on the board. Now, both you and Kerwin are members of Raleigh Demands Justice Coalition, but Kerwin, you sit currently on the governor's um, equity task force. Tell us what the connection is, if any, between that and the advisory, uh, the, the Raleigh Police Advisory Board. Um, yeah, so the governor's um, equity task force pretty much tackles statewide issues when it comes to police accountability, um, as well as creating different policy shifts and policy change um, and narratives within local municipalities, um, particularly dealing with law enforcement across the state of North Carolina, to whereas the Raleigh Citizen Advisory Review Board um, handles specific police uh, issues dealing specifically within Raleigh. And so uh, they are focused on policy change, and we're focused um, on creating these policies that they should enact within that particular uh, review board as well as the municipality of Raleigh. Greer, uh, the two uh, women who left the, I believe there are two women who left the Raleigh Police Advisory Board said there was a lack of transparency and also that they simply weren't uh, able to get, see other things getting accomplished. Um, do you understand their position? Do you think it was uh, a lack of patience perhaps or do you understand where they're coming from? 
I certainly do understand where they're coming from, and speaking solely for myself as an individual on that board, um, I have noticed that a bit as well. And so while I was disappointed to see those two, and they were women, resign their positions, um, it opened a greater conversation around transparency and true accountability in the city of Raleigh and in the state of North Carolina. And so I would hope that our elected officials not only read their letters, but understand that uh, they resigned for a reason. And that reason was because they were frustrated. After years and years of fighting for boards like these, it seems like municipalities across the state and across the nation really are not truly committed to justice and are not willing to get super uncomfortable um, with the truth. And you have a list of demands. Can you share some of those demands that you've outlined? outlined? Sure. So Raleigh demands justice after reading those resignation letters. As a community group and as a community individual, uh, we have outlined demands for the city of Raleigh. And so some of those include uh, giving the police review board oversight authority and subpoena power. That will have to come from the General Assembly. That's been a years-long fight, as well as making sure that the board addresses issues of inequity and works to refund Raleigh by suggesting an investment in programs like initiatives to address housing inequality, uh, environmental racism, and mental health initiatives that stand alone from the police department, as well as making sure that we are an independent board. And so uh, outlined as a board member, outlined in my uh, former board member's letters of resignation was a claim that the city um, and the city manager's office, the Office of Equity and Inclusion, were not allowing our board to be wholly independent. And so that's troubling and is also one of the demands that our board has true independence. Of course, we work and we're appointed by the city, but we really want to represent the community. And so that's tough when some of our board is being managed or, or overmanaged, as was cited in those letters by city officials. And Kerwin, I see you nodding. What I want to know is we're asking, are these boards effective? And you're sitting on a task force. You having uh, had the opportunity to have communication and hear input from all kinds of folks um, on the issue of fair policing. Is, are this list of demands that Greer just outlined, you know, fair? Are they, are they going to be considered at all? What are your thoughts? Um, I hope they will be strongly considered and taken into consideration, but also implemented. Um, and so, um, particularly my thoughts is these type of boards cannot be effective if, they're, if they are not ran independently. So let's say, for instance, the Raleigh Citizen Advisory Review Board. Um, if this board does not have subpoena power, it cannot look at records that it needs to make policy change, but also as well as um, if this board is managed by the city, the county, the city manager, um, who also manage the Raleigh Police Department, but also who run emails and different things that this board is going to look um, at and policy changes that need to be made by the police chief before it's actually funneled down to the board. This is a conflict of interest, in my opinion, and this states solely why uh, this board should be independent because it needs to hold true power and also to be able to hold true accountability um, without somebody uh, policing what they're supposed to be policing, which is the police. Is your sense that this, these demands are really going to be well received. Are you getting the cooperation that you expected? Um, so, to be honest with you, no. Um, to be honest, frank and candid, no, we're not getting the cooperation that we expected. Um, and so those in municipal position of power are taking these two uh, individuals' resignations as just being discontent with how the board function. Um, but in true um, conception and inception of this board, how it is really supposed to be functioning and how it's slated towards the community is not what we expected. Um, and so this is just an outcry from those who are on the board who seeing um, the board in shambles, and it really needs to be rethought, reformed, and changed immediately if it wants to make true and effective change, period. But the two of you do c intend to stick with it and continue communication. 
Yes. Yeah, so communication is the key. So before anything and change can be brought about, we must first bring all parties to the table, though we must true come in true fashion and honesty and address the elephant in the room. And so if something is not right, um, we got to speak up about it, we got to say something about it, and then we'll able to move forward um, from after that conversation. But until that conversation is really had, it's kind of, it will be left in shambles. Um, but we do not plan on walking away. Have to have open communication in order to make any kind of progress. The police advisory board grew out of the summer's protests. Another development, laws that could further criminalize activities defined as a riot. So this is legislation that's kind of growing in local communities all over the nation, uh, quite frankly. And uh, Senator Danny Britt of Lumberton filed Senate Bill 300 called the Criminal Justice Reform Bill. I want to know, what do you find uh, most troubling about this proposed legislation, Kerwin? Um, so what I find most troubling about this proposed legislation um, is particularly um, individuals, the charge of and rioting or inciting a riot will be up from a misdemeanor to a felony, um, which is very vague. So disorderly conduct can be very vague and range from a different array of things, but also being at protests and organizing protests, I've seen individuals um, get arrested for things that they didn't do. And so you would hate for somebody to be saddled um, for the rest of their life that might affect their employment, their housing, or different benefits um, with a felony for something that they didn't do. And so it is just too vague, but also as well as it is other troubling things in here like creating a database for use of force policies um, to which that is not being open and will not be candid to the public. It will be closed and confidential. Um, and it's just a host of other things that is, is kind of really jarring and concerning to me in this particular bill. Well, Greer, when we consider what just happened, not in Raleigh, but what happened at the nation's capital on January 6th, a move like this for legislation to really um, increase the, the criminal penalties for rioting, um, like the kind perhaps that we saw on January 6th, people can understand and possibly support a move to, you know, make it a little stiffer. What are your thoughts? You know, I think we're continuing to address the wrong things here in America, and that's trickling down to North Carolina. I think we see with the January 6th insurrection, of course, how unacceptable that was. Um, but as we've noted, and, and has been noted in the media, excuse me, uh, by the FBI and by uh, multiple databases, white domestic terrorism is the main cause for concern right now. And so as we look to address that, we need to make sure that we're focused on uh, allowing not only freedom of speech, but freedom of assembly here at the local level. And so we need to be very clear when we're defining rights versus nonviolent protesting and understanding that in the profession of policing, which stems from slave patrols, we need to make sure that we're transforming that and allowing community members to um, hold police accountable. And so I think we're talking about different things here, and we need to be very clear as to uh, what we're going to address when it comes to legislation, both here in North Carolina as, as well as nationally. Well, I had an opportunity to speak to Senator Natalie Murdoch a little bit before the program, and one of the the um, concerns that she expressed was the possibility of there being racial discrimination applied, um, you know, in an inconsistent way. What are your thoughts about that, Kerwin? Um, yes, that is one of my main concerns as well. Um, like I said uh, earlier, being a protest organizer, but also being at these different protests, um, I've actually seen racial discrimination practice against different protesters, uh, specifically black protesters. I've seen them more arrested and, and detained as well as 
um, pepper sprayed at a higher rate than their counterparts that was out there, even though their counterparts outnumbered them some of the times. And so this right here is extremely alarming and concerning because you do not want to saddle uh, individuals with a felony um, for the rest of their lives, um, particularly because they're being indiscriminated against. And uh, I'll give you the last word, Greer. How does uh, legislation like this speak to the current moment? I think we need to look at the root causes here and the root cause of many of these protests in 2020 and long before in our nation's history uh, of which young people have been on many of the front lines is racism and we need to address that. Uh, when we look at this legislation that is talking about policing or that's talking about um, you know limiting the ways that people can speak out and protest we need to make sure that we are equally addressing the inconsistencies in policing um, that communities feel safe that they feel uh, that they are being protected and our current system obviously doesn't do that. And so I'm looking forward to legislation like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act nationally. And then that trickling down to North Carolina and having folks that are willing to uh, jump in and really be brave and courageous and make sure that we're addressing the root causes, um, not only of racism, but the ways that those are perpetuated through many of our systems in America, including policing. Well, it's certainly important that we protect that right to protest and that the protests occur safely for all concerned. Greer Webb and uh, Kerwin Pittman, thank you both for participating and being on Black Issues Forum. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. If you want to reach us on Twitter or Instagram, just use the hashtag NCBlackIssues. You can also find our full episode on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for watching.